Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Later in the show, we'll hear about the challenges facing the Irish timber industry by Brexit. But we'll begin, as always, with a roundup of the main business stories of the week. And I'm joined in the studio by Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times. Owen, you're very welcome. Hi, Kieran. Uh, now, we're going to begin with the Eighth Amendment uh, referendum. It's coming up later this month. And this week, uh, very significant moves by Facebook and by Google. Different moves, uh, but they've decided to ban foreign ads uh, and indeed all ads in the case of Google. And um, that might in any way influence this referendum. Yeah, Google's actually gone a step further than Facebook by announcing a complete ban on all advertising uh, to do with the referendum, uh, unlike for, uh, Facebook, which just announced a ban on foreign bought ads. So they've gone a kind of step further. Um, and a decision uh, applies to all Google's advertising platforms, including AdWords and YouTube, and will come into effect uh, on Thursday this week. So, What's behind the zone? Um, well, you can't help but linking it back originally to the allegations of Russian interference in the US election, and more recently, the Cambridge Analytica scandal has finally prompted these big tech firms to t- take action. Um, a lot of critics might say it's very late in the day to be announcing this. The referendum's kind of uh, campaign's all but done. We're two weeks away from the vote. And that was the same accusation that was leveled at these firms in the US, that they didn't mm. really move uh, when there was lots of signs of... Uh, and do, know, we ha- do we have any sense of what influence, let's say, or how many ads have already been posted on Facebook or Google relating to the 8th? Or do we have any sense of how much has, how much money has been spent, particularly from abroad? Uh, or what influence any of this might have had today? Is there any analysis of that? Well, simply put, we don't. And that's the whole point. Um, there's a, a group called the Transparent Referendum Initiative, um, and that tracks online uh, advertising around the vote. And two weeks ago, Liz Carlin, its founder, said our group had picked up 144 different pages, this is on Facebook, uh, paying for ads at one point in time over the last few months. Now, we don't know who's paying for these ads. We don't know what groups are behind them. And that's the whole point. There's a complete kind of opaqueness around uh, this. And that that seems to have prompted the action. Um, Twitter seems to be kind of first off the mark. They, They have a um, a more long-standing advertising uh, restrictions around various health issues, including abortion. But uh, they've banned all advertising on the Irish referendum from the outset. So it seems like Facebook and Google are now only coming into the fray. The interesting thing is that 
you know, the Irish abortion referendum looks like it's going to be a test for a lot of, of these controls that are going to come in and probably be in play for the next US general election. Okay, so and do we know, uh, for example, if let's say there's an Irish general election at some point in the next 12 months, whether there's going to be a, a similar ban on ads? Well, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, Facebook is only ban- banning foreign paid ads. Um, and obviously these firms are exploiting a kind of loophole in the mm. Irish law. We know there's restrictions around political parties and political campaigns. But uh, there's obviously no restrictions around uh, advertising in the social media space. So I think a lot of these firms are kind of trial testing uh, a few of their kind of, um, you know, um, new rules, new restrictions and new apps uh, during the Irish section to see how they're going to work. All right, let's take a look at property prices now. Some new data from the CSO uh, showing that prices, property prices in Ireland continue to soar. Yeah. Actually, we even we even use the headline rate of inflation moderated to twelve point seven percent, which will. Well, that's, that's not going to gladden the heart of anyone. An annual rate of inflation of twelve percent in property. I mean, it's come a on. testament to the heat in the market that we would even talk about prices moderating uh, and still being rising by twelve point seven percent. But um, yeah, it's it, it's it's pretty torturous for people who are off the pro- property ladder to be looking at these figures tumbling down. Um, to put this in real money terms, a house or an apartment that costs, say, 300 grand last March, March 2017, could now be 338,000. So by sitting out, it's 38,000 dearer, which is a hefty sum of mon- money. And for um, first-time buyers, they would need 10% of the 38 uh, as for the deposit. So that's yeah. another 3,800 euro they would have yeah. to save. Not easy to do. No, not at all. Um, especially, especially when they're paying soar- soaring rents as well. Exactly. Uh, and wages cases, yeah. aren't uh, matching. Wage rises, even though they are moving forward, aren't mm. matching anything like this. Just, so you get into the figures, um, you know, the highest price growth in the capital. Uh, well, sorry, firstly, I should say uh, price rises in Dublin were put at 12%, 12.1% in the 12 months to March which is slightly uh, cooler than the rest of the country. But Dublin seems to be always a little bit ahead. Um, and then the highest price growth in the capital was Dublin City, where prices were rising at 14%. And the lowest was in South Dublin, where prices are rising at just under 10%. So uh, even 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 uh, in, in the places in Dublin that are rising the least, the inflation rate is still fairly high. Do we have any sense of the uh, continued impact of cash buyers on um, the market? Well, they've typically been taught to uh, account for around 50% of purchases. Mm. And that's probably the main reason why the central bank's uh, mortgage lending restrictions haven't dampened headline inflation. They have certainly, um, you know, uh, stopped people borrowing too much, but they haven't uh, dampened the runaway inflation that we're seeing because cash buyers obviously aren't, uh, you know, stopped or restricted from borrowing. Right. Now, we know prices in Dublin are pretty saucy. Uh, what about the rest of the country? Uh, where, where are the most expensive places outside Dublin? Yeah, the most expensive air code, uh, according to the latest figures, outside Dublin. And you know, many people will wonder is how far outside Dublin is Greystones in County Wicklow, which is uh, probably on commuting distance. And, and the average or mean price in the last 12 months there was 424000 And then uh, the least expensive place in the country by air code was Ballyhonas in County Mayo, where the mean price was 75000 So massive regional spread there in prices. Right. Well, I think the message for people is head to mail. Um, okay, so we're going to move to the ESRI now and suggesting uh, a report from the ESRI suggesting that raising excise duty on diesel would reduce pollution and raise 500 million euro for the Exchequer. The Budget Oversight Committee was considering this at a meeting earlier this week. Yeah, uh, 
Professor Edgar uh, Morganroth of Dublin City University's Business School was at the Oireachtas Committee yesterday. He's he, formerly of the ESRI, isn't he? He is, yeah. And he penned a report with the ESRI a few months ago um, which assessed basically the impact of various tax measures on the environment here. We and should say, I suppose, just to remind people that if you're a diesel driver, you'll notice as fact that uh, diesel prices per litre are generally, what, 8, 10 cent cheaper mm. per litre than, than petrol. Yeah, so Ireland currently adds uh, 48 cents of excise duty to each litre of diesel purchased compared to 59 cents for petrol. So the context of all this, uh, Kieran, is that in 2008, when the Greens were in power and global concern about rising CO2 uh, was at its height, um, the government began, like other uh, governments in Europe, to incentivise diesel use over petrol. And so, you know, 10 years on, we have now a much greater, uh, much greater uh, use of diesel vehicles. So... Um, the problem was that at the time we didn't really consider the the health implications and the pollution implications of diesel. And so while they're lower on CO2 emissions than petrol cars, um, they're higher on things like nit- nitrous oxide yeah. and particulates. And I think other countries are, are beginning the move to equalisation, aren't they? I think in the UK, for example, um, they've already uh, started down that road. But in Ireland, perhaps a little bit different in that our truck industry, our haulage industry, which is quite important to the economy, uh, largely, if not exclusively, uh, based on diesel. A lot of the buses uh, traversing our roads are based on diesel. And people in rural areas would argue that they need uh, they need diesel to get around because it's uh, it's much more economical. They're travelling longer distances and so forth. Yeah. And I suppose um, Professor Morganroth was asked, actually, by Fianna Fáil's John Lahart yesterday, like, what did he appreciate that those who bought cars in 2008 in good faith that they were kind of cleaner vehicles are now finding themselves on the wrong side of the pollution equation? And perhaps facing higher taxes and, he, and and lower values in terms of trading and so forth. Indeed. And uh, he said he appreciated that. And obviously his his study was there to to show that if the government went in one sweep to equalise, this is what the Exchequer would get, 500 million. But he was sort of hinting that the government may need to take a more phased mm. approach. Now, there was an expectation in the last budget that the government might make a move. They didn't. Uh, any sense it's going to happen this year? Yeah, I... I thought actually there was going to be a move in the last budget, but it seems that there was a bit of lobbying on on the part of the holiers that may have uh, may have cancelled that out. And obviously, um, the fact that the infrastructure for electrical vehicles or cleaner vehicles isn't actually there, and a lot of people in Ireland are facing more regional commutes, makes yeah, diesel cars more economical. So that would be a factor. So it seems maybe unfair to penalise them at this stage. Okay, and finally, I should ask you, Owen, are, are you a, a diesel or a petrol owner yourself? I'm a diesel, I'm afraid. Right, okay, important to declare that. I think I am too. Um, all right, We're, we leave it there. Owen uh, Burke Kennedy, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll hear about the challenges faced by the Irish timber industry caused by Brexit. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Now, welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. In this part of the show, we're going to be considering the impact of Brexit on the Irish timber industry. The sector contributes about 2.3 billion euro to the Irish economy each year and supports 12,000 jobs in rural Ireland. 
But with some 78% of the output exported overseas, the implications of Brexit are obvious. Here to tease them out with me are Quilcha CEO, Fergal Limi, John Murray, the owner of uh, family-owned uh, Murray Timber in Galway, and Lucinda Creighton, the chief executive of Vulcan Consulting, who's doing some advising in this whole area. Uh, Lucinda, maybe you could just sort of give us the backdrop to all of this. Just explain to people, you probably don't realise the size and scale of the timber industry in Ireland and the fact that we do export so much of our product. Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose I think it's fair to say that people have been very familiar and there's been a lot of focus on the implications of Brexit, potential implications of Brexit, depending on the nature Mm -hmm. of Brexit um, for the agri-food sector in particular. So there's been a real focus on that. Um, And people are probably not so aware because it's quite dispersed across the country. Um, of the implications for the timber industry, but it's it's very big, and and you'll hear um, from Fergal and John in terms of the 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 implications, the scale of the scale of the business. Um, so there are about twelve thousand rural jobs supported by the timber industry, mm. r- working across forestry and sawmills and so on. And it is a sector that is hugely dependent on the UK market. It's um, it's a very specific product, obviously, um, very sensitive to climate, and obviously. Um, uh, it it um, we benefit from proxim- proximity to the UK, so um, it's been pretty seamless um, up to now. And um, and depending on how the negotiations unfold over the next couple of months, um, whether the UK leaves the customs union, whether there can be some agreement around the customs union, um, or whether we face, um, which is looking certainly increasingly um, to be a very significant risk, that we end up you know with this sort of cliff edge scenario without um, mm. any any um, solution to the customs and, and, bor- and border issue, um, you know, there is a really a very significant risk then for for, for lots of sectors um, in the Irish economy, including timber. Yeah, you're a former politician, obviously, and you were a, a minister with a, a European portfolio uh, in the past uh, Fine Gael Labour coalition government uh, from 2011 onwards. What's your read of the Brexit negotiations and how it's going at the minute? Um, well, it's certainly high wire stuff. Um, so, I mean, th- th- there's a problem because normally in a negotiation, you mm. have two sides that are fairly coherent in what they want to get out of it. Uh, we have an EU side, which is monstrous in terms of its scale compared to the UK. So much bigger. Um, 27 member states. 27 countries. Um, and uh, and very, very co- coherent and cohesive, which was not anticipated. I think it's fair to say that um, the UK certainly believed, and I think a lot within the EU believed, that there would be a lot of fragmentation amongst the member states in the negotiation. But actually, it has transpired that it is very coherent. And on the other side, you have um, huge disarray in British politics. You have a, a Conservative-led government, now a minority government relying on the DUP, um, which is, you know, where there is open warfare at cabinet uh, meetings, uh, where there is no agreed position on how they should leave the EU. Um, And then even in the opposition benches, you have, um, you know, a a lack of clarity from Mm. the main opposition party, the Labour Party, with Jeremy Corbyn, who is an innate Eurosceptic, you know, being sort of outflanked by much more pro-European um, members of his own parliamentary party who want a softer Brexit. So um, it really is a game of um, of roulette at the moment, I think. Um, um, but is this not just sort of part of the normal cut and thrust of these kind of negotiations? And I, I, I watched the This Week programme on BBC most weeks and uh, Michael Portillo always makes the point, and he's obviously a Brexiteer, but he always makes the point that at the 11th hour, the 11th day and so forth, there will be a deal done. 
Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I don't think it's the norm in terms of political negotiation. It's not normal to have a cabinet that can't make up its mind in terms of what it actually wants. That is quite unusual. Um, And even the lopsided nature in terms of size of the negotiating partners um, is is unusual. Um, So it's, it's not sort of political business as normal. Um, we'll definitely see um, a, a big um, a big clash, I think, at the June European Council, the summit of the heads of state and government. Um, that is the deadline that has been set by the Irish government for a resolution to the Irish border question, which has much broader implications, as we have seen now on mm. the whole question of the customs union. Um, uh, there is, I think, a, a, a very big possibility that there could be a breakdown in the negotiations at that point. I I think it's highly unlikely that there will be any resolution to these issues in June. Uh, It certainly will go to the wire in terms of the European Council in October. But that's that really is the very final point where there can be agreement, um, because at, at that stage, you have to go to the ratification process, you have to have a vote in the House of Commons, you have to have a vote in the European Parliament. Um, and there is a very strong risk uh, in the midst of all of this that Theresa May loses a vote in the House of Commons next month. There are two really important bills coming into the House of Commons. She lost a non-binding vote last week where her own party, members of her own party revolted. It was non-binding, but it was indicative. Um, she could lose if they cross the aisle again. Um, she could lose votes on the customs union um, in in. Uh, actual binding legislative votes uh, later this month. Um, And there's also, I think, an interesting dynamic to all of this, which is the role of Sinn Féin, um, because her margin now is so tiny and minuscule in Parliament. Um, If Sinn Féin decide to sort of, you know, enter stage left um, and cast their votes um, in In Westminster, in Westminster, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I think that if it comes down to it and there's a really tight margin and um, there is a real possibility that Sinn Féin will see a big opportunity for themselves to be the kingmakers and to actually defeat um, the British government. Well, on their the newest Union member of, of Westminster who won the um, by-election uh, recently in the North made it very clear um, during the week that she's no intention of taking up her seat. And that was the, you know, that's the, the mandate the party has. Mm-hmm. It was put to the people, put to the electorate and they accepted that. Sure. And, you know, I, I've been around politics long enough to know that you know, politicians get mandates, but mandates mandates can be interpreted change, in different yeah. ways. There's a very clear mandate also, which could be argued from the nationalist and Republican community in Northern Ireland and indeed broadly in uh, elements of the of the unionist community in Northern Ireland um, to stay in the EU and uh, certainly to st- stay in the customs union and single market. And that could very well impact on decision making within that party in due course. Anyway, that's going a little bit it off is, topic, it but it is very inter- interesting and it could actually, it could be uh, a very, very important uh, turning point at some point, either later this month or uh, in October or indeed when it comes to ratification of um, of the um, exit bill uh, when it goes before the House of Commons uh, later this year. So very interesting political times ahead, I would say. John Murray, yours is a family owned company based in Galway. Um, tell us what Brexit might mean for your company. Uh, Brexit is, is creating a lot of uncertainty for our company. Um, 60% of our exports go to the UK. Um, this it, it would um, lend itself back to the time when we had the bust, when we had market failure within our industry, mm. and the industry was on on a three day week, uh, week on week off. You know that is that is the scenario we, we are facing as an industry. Just give us a sense for the sort of size and scale of your business. How many truck movements, for example, do you have in and out of uh, Britain each week, or maybe north south? Well, as a company, we've uh, one hundred and thirty truck movements per day. 
Per day. Per day. Right. No, not all of those are north south or east west, but you know, internal. Uh, so people. pretty seamless uh, at the minute, as given that Ireland and the UK are both members of the European Union. If Britain opts out of the customs union, what what does that mean, or what what's your fear about what it might mean? Well, there's a number of fears. Um, delays be a big fear. Bureaucracy be a big fear. And one of the one of major concerns is the lack of backloads from from uh, from the UK. Uh, Ireland or we export based on backloads, which is generally What's a backload. Now, a backload is so you have your primary load, which is coming from the UK to Ireland. They're always looking to fill that trailer on the way back, mm. and that's a backload. Uh, the the circular route has to has to create revenue to cover the cost of that route. Generally, the backload is cheaper than the than the primary load. If it becomes a situation, and we're seeing it with all these, the Brexit buster of the boat that has uh, gone out to Zeburga from Dublin, um, with the one to Santander, all of a sudden the land bridge, the UK land bridge, will be minimised. These are ferries that are essentially bypassing the UK yeah. to continental Europe. And if that's the case, then these backloads will, will no longer be backloads, they'll be primary loads. And it'll be tantamount to, to a, a hidden tariff. Um, transport is a big cost for us. We're a bulky good. And it's potentially a 10% tariff if we end up with backloads. So you end up paying an extra 10% of what you're already paying. What's your, no, what's... no, we don't. We'll, we'll end up paying twice as much as what we pay at the moment. And that, at the moment, equates to, equates to about 10% uh, of uh, tariff. Okay. Uh, yeah. How many jobs uh, are at stake in your business? There's uh, 160 jobs full time. And we have another uh, similar figure indirectly to work work for us on a continuous basis. Okay. Now, Brexit obviously has been in the ether for the past um, couple of years, but we're only hearing from the timber industry now. Why, why is that? Why is it taking so long to get your case, to make your case on the public stage? Um, I suppose lack of organisation. Uh, the industry can be a bit fragmented. Um, it's very hard to, to be organised with your greatest competitors. And that is, that is what we are. Um, the timber industry... Brexit Forum, which was set up uh, in conjunction with Quilcha, was a good forum to allow the industry to to gather and and to put a, a case together for for our concerns as to what Brexit is bringing and and possible solutions. Yeah, Fergal, let's talk about Quilcha. It's a state agency. Obviously, a lot of people uh, know know or think they know about uh, Quilcha and what exactly you do. But just fill us in first of all on the sort of size and scale of your operations. Yeah, so Quilcha today, we own and operate 7% of the country's land, and we run three businesses off it. Uh, we have our core forestry business, which supplies logs to people like John, uh, who then process that into timber into the UK. Uh, we then have a renewable energy business, which we're now one of the largest providers of renewable energy in the form of wind farms in this country. And we have Medite Smartply, which manufactures MDF and OSB, which largely goes to the UK and to about 32 countries around the world. And in total, we have about 1,000 people directly employed, and we have another 2,500 contractors across the country. Just in terms of uh, Brexit, what will it mean for Quilcher? So I think overall for Quilcher, given that we have our core business as forestry and, and a core business supplies the timber mm. to, the, um, to the UK, um, in essence, what we're trying to do here is grow the overall sector. Um, the industry as a whole is a growth story. It's got an opportunity to double in size over the next 10 years. And there's very few industries in Ireland can claim that. And so this story is as much about trying to protect that growth as it is about protecting the existing jobs. And if you look at the entire industry, there are 12,000 people who are employed in the industry today. In rural Ireland as well. In rural Ireland. And for perspective, I mean, people Mm. talk about the tech industry, but that's more than Google, PayPal, Airbnb, and LinkedIn combined employ in this country. And if you think about the the, um, 
impact it has on every rural economy across the country is it's significant. Not only that, the growth potential over the next five or 10 years is significant. And that's not just us trying to talk up the industry. The trees are actually in the ground. They've been planted over the last 20 years. And when they're harvested, you're going to see a doubling of the timber supplied on this, this island over the next uh, 10 years. And a lot of that timber needs to find a home. Today, 70% of that goes to the UK. And we would imagine that majority of that growth will also go to the UK in future years, which is why, with the impact of Brexit, we're certainly in trying to ensure that we manage our businesses in a way that protects us and protects that growth. In the so future. what contingency planning has Quilcha been doing since the Brexit vote? So in the first thing we've done is we've brought the industry together to try and understand what the implications are for our own industry and trying to understand how can we navigate potential things like border crossings that might occur in the future, minimize the impact that they will have. In our Medi Smart Ply business, we've been looking at potentially developing warehouses in the UK. We've reconfigured our UK business, which um, is based in Dartford in the UK. And we've brought, um, probably counterintuitively, some of our offices in from Holland and Germany into the UK. Um, the big challenge for us is to be seen increasingly as a UK-based business um, in our Medat Smart Ply um, uh, business. And the reason for it is that today, our customers, such as the large distributor like Travis Perkins, B&Q in the UK, they see us akin to a homegrown player. And we can deliver timber to them within 24 hours. If in the new future that becomes more difficult, they might pause before they would contract with us or, or buy from us. And so we need to be seen as much as possible as a UK-based business. So what about developing new markets, moving away from the UK and looking elsewhere? Um, so we are certainly in, in Medi Smartply, we currently deliver to 32 countries. We're, we are increasing the amount that we can deliver to other countries. But there are two things in a broader business that, that will hold us back. Firstly, the sheer weight of the product. Um, we're delivering very heavy product and the transport costs and the logistics, you know, don't make that as attractive as people sourcing those products close to their, to their home markets. The second piece is that in the timber industry and the, the timber that we provide into the UK, it's suitable for the UK market in the standard. So it goes into roofing, it goes into flooring of a specification that is not adapted in other European countries. So there are some barriers there to us naturally going to those other markets. And I suppose the other overall piece is the UK is the second largest importer of timber in the world and happens to be on our doorstep. And regardless of what happens with Brexit, we still see the UK market as being hugely important in the future. It's just trying to understand how do we navigate that, mm. which is the work of the Brexit Forum. John, there already has been a financial impact, hasn't there, from Brexit? I mean, the currency um, translation sterling is weakened against the euro, I think, about 15, 16%. So is, is that already biting you? It's 27%. 27%, right. Because Brexit started impacting a year before the vote. We've seen the, you know, sterling was down at, at 70p. It climbed 10% prior to the vote. It, it climbed 10% that day and uh, and another 7% since. Um, so, yes, it has impacted us greatly. But the thing about it is the, the market has accepted that it has to source the material. And if that's the case, you know, it, mm. they're going to have to pay for it. The absolute values over in the UK have, have covered that 27%. Right. Um, what kind of margins are you operating off? It'd be very tight margins. Do you want to give us a, a sense of it? Uh, typically, uh, the sector would be somewhere in the region of 5%. Okay, so um, thin margins. Um, Fergus, so you've come together as an industry now, perhaps uh, haven't been as cohesive in the past, right. uh, and you're now focused on this uh, Brexit issue, and you know, what, where do you go from here, or, or what do you do from here? 
Are you lobbying the government? I mean, what's what's the purpose yeah, so, of this? What are so you I hoping to achieve? As an industry, uh, and I think actually reading Cliff Taylor's piece in The Times this morning was interesting. He describes Brexit as the Russian doll and the layers of complexity that are, are there is, is absolutely right. And for us as an industry, what we wanted to do was put forward in simple language what are some of the potential impacts and what are some of the potential solutions that would help our industry? Now, you could be writing a lot of this for several different industries. Uh, we happen to be honing in on, on the timber industry mm. because of... Well, let's focus on timber then. So what, um, what so, are the solutions? So, so when we've looked at the different crossings, uh, the, the different arrangements in different countries, uh, things like just practical interchangeability of customs officials on the customs border, should there be one, automatic uh, number plate recognition, Simple, practical pieces that allow us to, over the next year to get ready for what may inevitably be some checks on the borders. Um, one of the important things here, Karen, is that we don't have the luxury of waiting till March 1st next year. We have to be getting ready now because any changes we make to our systems will take at least 12 months to implement, if not longer. And so the more work we can do now, the better. You ask the question, what are we going to do with this? Well, we're already talking to uh, our own government. Uh, we're in Brussels next month informing them about what uh, our ideas are, and in the UK. And really what we're trying to do here is that we're not the most attractive industry in the world. And therefore, when it comes to the long list of industries that people will be writing protocols for, we're probably bottom of the pile. So our idea is, well, let's put forward something that people can actually take mm. that is reasonable. And hopefully that'll become the blueprint for what they implement for our industry. Solid, not sexy, perhaps, is the way to describe I the timber industry. Probably, uh, <laughs> right, okay. Accurate. Now, lessons to be learned, perhaps, from the Norway-Swedish border. Uh, Sweden, obviously, inside the EU, Norway, outside. Yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons on the use of technology, uh, the automatic number plate recognition that you see there, and the, the, the preferred trader status that you actually have between those countries. Um, they've been doing this for years. And what we need to start doing is begin to think about those practical solutions, putting the technology in place. If you look at the border between those two countries, there's an awful lot of rural outposts that have um, technology now to be able to recognize number plates. And if they're on the, the trusted trader system, there are no issues. If, they, if they're not, then there will be checks. They're the practical pieces that we need to begin to think about. And I know there's a lot of political engagement and debate going on at the moment, but as an industry, we, we can't wait for that. And we do need to start thinking about those uh, in, in the event that there are going to be border checks in, in, in the next two or three years. Yeah, I suppose uh, all the timber has to be transported uh, by ferry, of course. So you have to go into a ferry port, uh, presumably in the UK, well, with yeah, your product. Well, yeah, 40,000 of our movements are east-west, but there's another 40,000 that are north-south. Um, so we would actually be as concerned about the north-south implications as we mm. would the east-west. And for us, you know, if you think about there being 100,000 movements outside this country every year, that's that, that's a significant piece that we need to make sure we get right on the border of Ireland, but also on the ports uh, that, we, that we have into the UK. Yeah, Lucinda, the British side seems to be suggesting that technology can solve all, all of this, certainly on the north-south uh, element. I mean, Jacob, I keep hearing Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, <laughs> talking about how technology can deal with all of this. What do you think? Well, Jacob Rees-Mogg is a font of all, all wisdom on uh, on customs unions and uh, um, and the future of uh, of our relationship. No, I think um, I suppose what what the timber industry has done is focus very much on the practical solutions. Um, in the case of um, I suppose the eventuality that none of us want to see. Um, so nobody wants the UK to leave the customs union. Um, and, you know, the, the, the smart solutions that um, that we have looked at in uh, the Norway-Sweden border, also the, the US-Canadian border, which obviously is entirely different in either country as a member of the EU, but they, they have very interesting advances in technology, which they're using, which allows for a fairly seamless... Um, well, they have um, a free trade agreement, NAFTA... 
they have NAFTA, um, but but they also have, um, you know, a lot of um, developments, particularly in the last five years, which have allowed for much smoother um, um, logistical arrangements between the two countries. Um, so there's a lot of really useful stuff there. Um, but I guess on from the placing it in the context of the political conundrum around the Good Friday Agreement and so on, you know, those solutions um, you know, don't solve those problems. They're 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 different problems for a different day. And they're obviously very much um, at the at the core of the EU's negotiating um, a- approach and agenda right now. Um, you know, so so they're sort of separate issues, if you like. I mean, these are the practical solutions to how you would manage the trade between um, Irish ports and UK ports or just you know, truck movements mm. north south of the border. Um, and I think I think it's fair to say that, you know, the timber industry can't solve the, the challenges around the political challenges around the Good Friday Agreement um, and that bigger picture piece. Um, but what what they can do is is look at solutions to the practicalities. Um, if if it is the case that... Um, that and I presume you've been bending the ear of the Irish government and indeed EU officials, maybe even the British government, I don't know, uh, about uh, about the, the concerns you have uh, on behalf of the timber industry and the possible solutions that exist. What kind of hearing are you getting? Um, well, the timber industry have been doing it themselves um, and, and very effectively, I think. Um, look, I think you've seen, you've certainly seen a shift since the start of the year in terms of um, the Irish government's approach. You know, we saw in January um, the Thornish, the mobilising all government departments now to start preparing for a no-deal scenario. So that work is happening. Um, we know it's happening with customs officials in Ireland um, who are now engaged um, with with the EU authorities, but also with the British authorities. So the work is beginning to happen. Um, and I suppose it's it's a question of nobody wants to have to sort of um, push the button. Um, but but you have to have the preparation done and you have to you have to have a, a clear understanding of how it's all going to work um, in the event that there isn't a deal or that there's a deal which is you know not the optimal one that, that everybody wants, which is for the UK to stay in the customs union. So it's very tricky. Um, but the key, I think, and the message um, has to be from 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 all industry, really, the message has to be. You know, preparation um, is essential and it needs to be happening now. And, and, and thankfully, that is that is happening in the last few months at government level. John, how prepared is your company? The preparation is is being involved in forums like this, um, getting our message across to to the, the political arena. Uh, from, we're, we're looking at customs, how, how we're going to potentially deal with that. Um, but, you know, at this moment in time, we don't have a clear line of sight of what's ahead of us. And that's a major problem. It's a major problem for, for you know, the certainty of investment in the future of, of the company. Um, Are you holding back on investment? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If anything, we're doing the opposite. Right. Uh, Fergal, how do you see this playing out? Um, for us as an industry, uh, the UK will always be a crucially important market. What we need to ensure is that we prepare over the next six to 12 months and ensuring that we reduce that uncertainty as much as we can and, and influence policymakers as much as we can. I think one, you know, I'm relatively new to this industry and I think a lot of your listeners will be surprised at the sheer scale of the family businesses that are across the country that are some of them greater than 100 million of revenue and support a lot of jobs. The opportunity is to grow that industry quite significantly over the next number of years. That will happen. It's just we want to make sure it happens in a way that doesn't have casualties along the way. Uh, well, you're a state-owned company. I mean, you have the year of government, presumably. So what are you, what are you telling them? They Cer- be doing? Certainly, we're very clear in articulating uh, our view in terms of what needs to happen. And to be fair, the Department of Agriculture have been very supportive in, in understanding that and to bring that to fore. 
Uh, we're probably on the edge of pushy uh, in trying to drive some of these solutions and what needs to get done. And that's because we don't have the luxury of waiting. We need to be pushing this on and we need to be getting ready now. John mentioned the investment that uh, he's making in his company over the next while. And if you look across the industry, I would say there's been probably 30, 40 million investment in the last 12 months alone. That will not continue to the same pace unless we get certainty in this. And it's a great story. And it's a story that we talk about um, energizing the rural populations and energizing rural economies. This is a story that we should allow to do that. So therefore, we're leaning on that message with government that we've got a viable answer to to a lot of those issues. Should taxpayers be worried about their investment in Quilche? Uh, No. Uh, We have a broad-based business. Uh, This year, uh, we're we're generating about 60, 70 million operating cash and I plan to get to about 100 million operating cash. the focus of this is not, in our perspective, a defensive piece. It's about protecting that growth. Okay. All right. I wish you well with your deliberations as uh, as this unfolds. It's going to take some time, uh, no doubt. John Murray, Fergal Leamy and Lucinda Creighton, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Umbert Kennedy, Lucinda Creighton, Fergal Leamy and John Murray. Uh, Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm